book of Isaiah. We're kind of in, this is an end to a little section within a section of Isaiah. We dealt with Cushites and the Egyptians, and now we're kind of seeing them together in this very small chapter in the book of Isaiah. Before we go to his word, again, let's go to him in prayer and ask that he would help us in the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us. We are distracted this morning, or at least I am. And so we pray that you would help us to focus, that we would come to your word expecting, knowing that you were going to show us our own sin, that you were going to lead us to be closer and closer to you, that you were going to teach us the truth, and that you were going to show us how we ought to live. And so, Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. So as I was reading through the book or this chapter in Isaiah and reading kind of the history behind it, because there's a lot of historical context in this particular passage that we'll get into. It made me think of when my kids were younger and when they were really young, like when Jenny was like less than two, like little bitty, because she's kind of the, the focus of the story. My kids would actually use Jenny to, um, oh, there she is. See, it's like, where is she? She's still really small. They would actually use Jenny as their kind of uh, protector as they would get into certain situations so that they could feel braver uh, when they were doing things. For example, one of the kids wanted to go into their own bedroom in which the light was off. The light may have been in, on in the hallway, but it was off in their bedroom. And so in order to gain protection, um, they would grab my 18-month-old daughter's hand and walk into the room as if she was going to ward off anything that might be in there to uh, deal with them, she was going to, uh, you know, help them. They, this this still happens in my house, by the way, uh, and they're all much older than that. Uh, another example that was even funnier is when they would go, like we'd be in a fast food restaurant like McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, something like that, and they were eating, and the kid was like, I want to get more lemonade. And we're like, all right, well, you know where the counter's at. We would make them go up there and do that themselves. And, of course, you know, when you're six, this is kind of daunting. So, of course, they would grab... 18-month-old Jenny's hand and walk up to the counter with Jenny so that they could have that bravery, you know, because grabbing her hand and walking up with her made it made it much better. What was it about Jenny at 18-month-old that made them so brave? She was barely able to walk. She was not able to say a whole lot. But for some reason, she was this talisman of courage and that emboldened the kids to do things that they would not normally be able to do. In our text today, we're going to read about a similar kind of thing. It has to do with the Philistines. Again, we'll see that. We don't see the word mission, but we do see it's one of their cities. And they had their own talismans of courage. The nations or the empires of the Egyptians and the Cushites. Assyria was occupying Philistia during this time. Egypt and Cush were basically selling their services. To anyone who would buy, they were trying to get a leg up on the Assyrian juggernaut as it was crashing through the ancient Near East. Philistia was interested 
And they had built up this kind of rebellion, thinking they could take on the Assyrians for some reason. And that's kind of where we're at. Meanwhile, Isaiah had been called to become a walking sign of sorts. And um, and that's to show what would happen to Judah if they were to do the same thing. So as we study this this text, I think we're going to see a lot here for our own present day. As we are seeking to live lives that glorify God. As we are seeking to proclaim Christ to a lost world. It's tough, but it's very easy to turn to the world for guidance on things that we should never turn to them for at all. I think we'll see the folly of that choice. And so as we do that, we're going to look at two main ideas from the text today. The world as an escape and then Christ as an escape. So with that, let's look at the text, Isaiah chapter 20, in its entirety. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Isaiah chapter 20, starting at verse 1. In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, At that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals with your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and of Egypt, their boast. And the inhabitants of the coast will say in that day, Behold, this is what happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So we have some, uh, Isaiah continues to not disappoint us in its very interesting word pictures happening here. Except this was a literally a walking word picture. Uh, for a bit of review and context and background, the last few weeks we've talked about the Cushite Empire. We talked about the Egyptian Empire, how God intended to judge both of them and what would happen to those nations. Now we see them in a bit different light. They are seen coming to the aid of the Philistines. Ashdod, which is mentioned there in verse 1, was one of the city-states in Philistia at the time. And after Assyria came through, they were in control. They had kind of installed their own puppet king, and they weren't, they didn't necessarily have troops stationed there or anything, but Assyria was, just had their hands in everything in the Philistine Empire. And so the Philistines who lived there wanted a revolt. They wanted to return back to their own nation. So they sought out the Cushites and the Egyptians, or so it would seem. Remember also at this time, Cush was in control of Egypt. The, uh, 
This, this time in Egypt history is actually known oftentimes as the Kushat dynasty or the Nubian dynasty. And so they were in control of this whole area. The Philistines by themselves may have left well enough alone. They weren't necessarily the big empire or anything. But the Kushite pharaoh named Shabako, I just liked that name, so I thought I'd mention it, saw this as an opportunity to kind of strike out against Assyria through someone else. And so they stirred up the clouds of rebellion in the Philistine city-states in which Ashdod was leading the charge. It's kind of like the cartoons, you know, when you... And the characters, whoever these characters are, it's usually some little mouse or little cats, and they're trying to get something out from under this giant sleeping dog that's got its head and shoulders sticking out of the doghouse. And, you know, it's sleeping on a bone or whatever they want. And they're trying to get it out from underneath the dog without waking the dog. How does it end every single time? They wake the dog up. Every time. Well, that's exactly what happens here. Philistines wake up the dog, except for this case, the dog is Assyria, and they've been known for destroying nations and wiping them off the map. History tells us that that's exactly what happened. In 713 BC, Assyria laid siege to Ashdod to reclaim it for the Assyrian Empire. And in 711, three years, they captured it. During this three years, we are told that Isaiah was walking around naked and barefoot per the instructions of the Lord he was asked to walk around with nothing on this could have been he may have had undergarments on what the language may suggest maybe not it may have been kind of a part of the day where he kind of paraded himself at a certain time of the day and wasn't that way all the time for three years again we don't really know but we do know why he did this and the message that he was to give to the people. And so with that, we'll look at the first point, the world as an escape. Verse 1. In the year that the commander-in-chief in, in chief, who was sent by Sargon, king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. So some of your translations may say, uh, they may give this person the title or name Tartan, the year that Tartan came, which is like probably a title that means commander-in-chief basically someone who isn't the king but carries the voice and the actions of the king so the king sends this person to do their thing they give them free reign to take over and do the job and this person's one job snuff out the rebellion take back ashdod for the assyrian empire and that's exactly what took place and so in verse two at that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah, son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. So these are some very special instructions from the Lord to do this. This wasn't a private thing, walk around in your own home, but he was to walk around in front of the people, as we see in verse 3. He did this for three years. It says, removed his sackcloth, not a normal piece of clothing for us today, probably something that the prophets were used to wearing, very modest clothing. Think of like a burlap bag with a rope tied around, around it. Just so, I guess you could tell that's where your waist was. I don't know. 
uh, not wearing a whole lot of clothing anyway, some sandals and this burlap sack, probably some undergarments. And so here he is, take these things off and walk around the people. If you read through the Old Testament, particularly if you read through the prophets, it's not uncommon at all for God to use the prophets to do some strange things in order to get the attention of the people. Read books like Hosea, Ezekiel, if you want to just read some really strange things. This one is quite tame compared to some of the things that are happening in the book of Ezekiel. Jeremiah, another one. It's a word picture for the people. It's a living picture, a living testament to what the Lord is trying to tell them. Yet he reserved the meaning and the symbol of it until the end. And so we get the idea that Isaiah had been walking around for three years during the siege of Ashdod. And the people were kind of like, what's going on here? And then after three years, the Lord told them what was going on there. He tells us, verses 3 through 5, look there with me. The Lord said, as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles. So he tells us, what is it about? Just like the Lord was having Isaiah walk around as if he had just been captured and was being led into exile with no possessions, not even the clothes on his back, this is what's going to happen to Egypt and Cushites. This is what's going to happen to them once Assyria comes in and wrecks them. This is what happens when a foreign invader comes in. What do they do? They come in and take all the spoil and they lead the people back to their own land. Why do they do that? To give them homes? No, to make them their slaves. So think of, think of Egypt. Think of the Cushite empires. We've talked about these places and we've talked about how awesome they were in the world's history, about all the things that they contributed and all the things that they did. And now we're being talked about how they're going to walk back to the Assyrian Empire naked with none of their possessions, leaving all of their monuments to kind of rot away. Verse 6, And the inhabitants of this coastline will say, In that day. Well, that day is a historical thing. 671 B.C., the Assyrian king, Esarhaddon, conquered Cush and Egypt, walked in, took them all, and took their people back as slaves. So, think of the message that is for Judah here. What is Judah supposed to see? Do you think it was tempting for Judah, this tiny little nation, stuck on the coast, surrounded by all these giant nations, to reach out to get help against Assyria? Sure it was. It would have been tempting for anyone. No one wants to be completely conquered. Those same folks that were trying to stir things up in Judah are trying to stir things up in the Philistines were also trying to stir them up in Judah. We've talked about that over the last few weeks. They went to Judah. What did Judah say? No, we don't want any part of this. We don't want any alliances. Everyone wanted Judah on their team. But Judah was now being shown in a very graphic way what those nations who they would attempt 
to align with for going where they were headed. There was no hope in Egypt or Cush. Verse 6, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. This is what happens to those to whom we fled for help. I think the application for us today is pretty plain. Who or what are we fleeing to for help? It's easy to read statistics on things like drugs and alcohol to see how a lot of people escape to those things. Life gets hard for everybody. It's across the board. Life is a struggle. And drugs, things like drugs, they offer an escape from reality. They offer you this temporary time where you feel better for a moment. Everything kind of goes away and you feel really good and you're having fun or whatever. And that's the key. You just feel better. It doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't change your circumstances at all. Instead, when you come off the high, it's actually worse than it was before you did. If you don't think that's the case, if you're like, oh, well, we'll make it. I can do this and I can control myself. Just ask any hospital employee if that's the case. They will tell you the biggest problem that they look at today. As a teacher, I see the results of this. What happens when parents escape? Or children, for that matter. For lots of people, it's not drugs and alcohol. That's kind of the easy one. It's politics. I think these last few weeks have really shown that to be the case. Think about those recent shootings in Dayton and El Paso. Rather than deal with the hard issues, and these are hard issues, it's, it's difficult, people escape into just blaming others. You know, and that's what one side. One side says, well, it's all Trump's fault, and Trump is easy to blame because, I mean, just look at him. He's easy to blame. Anyone who supports him is also a part of the problem. And then they blame, you know, weapons because weapons can somehow consciously are able to make decisions to kill people. Well, then you have the other side of the coin. Who blames, wants to blame things like mental illness or video games or some other thing because it's not possibly a problem with their ideology at all. It's just a problem with something else over here. Just like the other side says, it's obviously not a problem with us, it's a problem with them. As long as we don't have to face our own sin and evil... So we blame anything else or anybody else. Just don't show me what I'm capable of. Because if I have to start looking within when I look at these problems, then it shows me that, you know what, I'm actually not that much better. Don't show me the possibility of my own mortality either. Because I want to blame other people. I want to escape into that. Because it's so much easier to blame others. It's so much easier for it to not be my problem. Of course, money's a big one as well. It's an easy escape because you can never work enough or make enough to be comfortable. You always need one more dollar or a nicer car or a nicer house or whatever it is because you'd hate for anyone to know that you're actually stressed to the gills and you're trying to just keep your head above water. So all of these things that we surround ourselves with just give the appearance that we're actually doing just great. Jesus said that the love of money is the root of all evil. And if you know someone who's controlled by their money, you see that for sure. 
trusting in money to give you comfort. It's like trusting in an 18-month-old baby to keep you safe when you're walking into a dark room. It's pretty ridiculous. It doesn't even make any sense. It's actually comical. We could fill in the blank with quite a lot of things here. We could just keep going. I could spend the next several hours talking about the things that people escape to, whatever it is. There's lots of things that we escape to, so we don't have to deal with the real issues at hand. What's the real issue at hand for Judah? Assyria is coming, and that they should be ready. And they could trust a bunch of here-today-gone-tomorrow nations, or they could trust in the Lord, who's neither of those things. He's always there, and he never leaves. The same question is there for us. We could trust in a bunch of things that will leave us naked and barefoot, like the people walking off into exile. If you think money or some politicians or something else is going to save you, it's not going to happen. In fact, the thing that you, things that you make your master, they make you a slave. That's how the relationship works. You make something your master, it makes you a slave. And you've heard this from me before. When you take something like that and you make it your God, those sorts of things don't give anything to you. They only take things away from you. And they only ask for more. Money, drugs, politicians, fill in the blank, whatever it is for you, it's incapable of giving you anything. It's only capable from taking from you. The only one who gives and wants nothing in return is the only one that can save you. Which brings me to the second point. Christ is an escape. Turn with me quickly. Jeremiah chapter 6. Jeremiah chapter 6. And Jeremiah is another book, another prophet, where... um, it's actually about 100 years later from when Isaiah is doing his thing. Uh, but he's still teaching the people of Judah lessons. Because now in Jeremiah's day, Judah is dealing with another power that's coming to take over, them, take over everyone. And they're actually going to do that. And so look with me at verses 16 and 17. These are the instructions from the Lord through the prophet to the people who are continually turning away. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. How attractive could that be to find rest for your souls? But they say, we will not walk in it. Verse 17, I set a watchman over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. Wouldn't it be nice if we had someone sounding a warning for us? These things are bad. But well, we do. But they say, we will not pay attention. So, a hundred years later, after the time of Isaiah, when they saw a man walking naked and barefoot, and they were told, this is so you knew, that you know... That these things that you think are going to save you, they're actually not. Look at them. They're walking back to Assyria as slaves. There's nothing to them. A hundred years later, have they learned anything? 
Look at the ancient paths. You will find rest for your souls. No, we won't. Pay attention and be warned. Yeah, we're not going to do that. Back to Isaiah, chapter 20, verse 6. And we, how shall we escape? This is the people of Israel saying this. This is the people of Israel that didn't read the Old Testament. They actually lived it. But the Lord showed the people a way of escape over and over. Let me just bring out a couple of high points that are generally well known. Well, let's go to Egypt, for instance, dealing with just a couple of our players today. People of God escaped from Egypt, you know, because God orchestrated these incredible, miraculous things. And they led them out of the people, and, the, and then the Pharaoh was like, no, I think I want them back. And he chased them to the Red Sea, and it seemed as if the people of Israel would be slaughtered against the Red Sea. And the Lord said, here's a way out. And he made the Red Sea stand on its end. God provided an escape. But I guess they forgot about that time. Or the giant, speaking of the Philistines, the giant Goliath who threatened an entire army. It's just still kind of crazy to me that all of these soldiers with weapons were just cowering in their boots. Did, not, did God not provide an escape? He brought up the little shepherd boy as an escape. But it was an escape for them. There are problems greater than Goliath and greater than the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army that we have to deal with. These problems are sin and death. They're the two greatest enemies. And the problem with both of them is that we're born with them. We don't acquire them as we live. We are born sinners. And we are born on our way out. Death, the death rate among people is currently one to one. Everyone is going to die. And while they are living, everyone is going to sin. These are both very big problems that we have to deal with. Why? Because those sins earn us the judgment of a holy God. Which is not a good thing. And death means that we'll one day have to stand before His throne face to face and give an account of our lives. Everyone on earth knows this is true. Some choose to ignore it. Some choose to deny it. But everyone knows it, whether they had admitted it or not. And because they know this is true... Everyone is doing something to escape from it. Everyone is doing something to escape from it. God, from ages past, has provided a way out. The ancient paths in which one can find rest, yet we continually choose our own way to find a little rest. He sounded a warning, yet they continue to ignore it. If you're a Christian... You know what these ancient paths are. You know what the warning is. Yet many times in our Christian lives, we continue to say, No, Lord, that's not right. As if we could tell the Lord of creation what is wrong and right. The answer to the question of how shall we escape continues to be in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the escape. The world will show us a different version of what escape means. I've already went over a couple of these. 
Again, we can continue to go on and talk about all the different ways that people escape. The world even attempts to stir this up within us. To give us another answer. Because it's the way of the evil one to use the world against the children of God. How long has he been doing it? Go back to Genesis. He continues to do it. He may even present us with answers that seem spiritual and okay. Well, it it sounds like Christianity. It maybe seems like what the Bible says. Just like the fruit in the garden seemed pleasing to the eye. Good for eating and able to make one wise. Yet when they ate it, they would surely die. There's only one way to escape sin and death and to escape the judgment of a holy God. And that's Jesus Christ. There's no other way. In fact, he wasn't owed any of that. Jesus, he went willingly. He chose to be your escape. Willingly. He provided an escape. He took the killing blow that was due for us, for our sin. If you're a Christian, know this. You've already escaped. Stop trying to find another way out. Trust in the Lord. Quit trying to get back in the fight. It's over. He's won. You are victorious because of Him. That's it. And if you're not in Christ, if you're not a Christian, and you've never considered these claims before, just know that when you die, you have to face your Creator. There's no other options. There's not another path that you can take. I'd rather not see God. Too bad. You will. And there will be no escape only by turning from your sin turning to Jesus in belief can you escape the wrath that is due you call upon the name of Jesus and be saved in conclusion let us cast off these things that we would cling to rather than Christ let us find rest for our souls and escape in him and him alone let's go to him in prayer Lord Jesus, as we read these words and as we hear your word, it's easy to see the many different ways that we try to escape. We see the enemy and it seems to be stacked up against us and we would grab a hold of anything other than you in order to find rest for our souls. So Lord, we pray. First, we ask your forgiveness. We ask that you would draw us closer to you, that you would do whatever it takes to draw us closer to you, that you would show us our inability to do this, that you would show us our need of you. And Lord, we also pray for those that we know that are continually looking to other things that don't know you. We pray that they would find you, that you would seek them out, and that you would call them, that they would hear your voice, and that they would repent and believe. We pray these things in your name. Amen.